Well, Ken made reference to uh, the upcoming election. I just want to put that before you uh, once again and call the church family to prayer. Uh, Ken encouraged you and challenged you to vote. Uh, That's where uh, we need to begin, but to also um, bathe this whole process in prayer. This is an unprecedented time in American history, and um, we need to... uh, call uh, upon our God to help us during these days. We do have exciting news, uh, Chris and Portia. Is Portia still here? Would you like to, uh, did you have to step out? Do you have Paxson? Would you like to introduce Paxson to all of us and hoist him up so we can see this young man? All right. Congratulations. That's a good looking baby. Eight pounds, four ounces. Is that right? 21 inches. Got a basketball player in the making. All right. Softball. So, that's right. That's right. Maybe in 83 years, right, Spence? Uh, boy, we had uh, Spence as our catcher this year and 83 years young behind the plate. You know, my favorite time of the game, Spence, was the first batter. Because Spence, as he was behind the batter, he would say, All right, here's our first out. <laughs> the batter always looked and, Who is this guy? So that's, that's wonderful. Uh, I want to also uh, ha- remind you to be praying for Jared Jones as he recovers. Please also be praying for, for Jerry and for Betsy. We're so thankful that you're, you're here with us this morning. Also for uh, John Helder. I don't see John this morning. He goes into surgery on Wednesday down in Seattle. And then also for Gary Smith. We're so happy that Pat could be here this morning. And uh, Gary had surgery a few days ago. Was it Wednesday, Pat? It's been a crazy week. In fact, uh, the, the hospital has issued me a white coat and I just put it on a hook and I go down to the hospital and, and see our, our friends and family members from Christ Fellowship. But please remember Gary in your prayers. We're hoping he'll be out ICU. Um, maybe even today. That would be that would be terrific. So please remember them in prayer. I want to have you open your Bibles with me this morning to John chapter 18. Yes, we made it through John chapter 17. We begin this morning in the Garden of Eden where we find uh, a man and a woman. And in that garden, as you know, Adam rebelled against the authority of God by disobeying him. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 say, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then Romans chapter 5, verse 12, summarizes the consequences And I might add the horrible consequences of that first sin. Sin that plunged all of humanity. There is no one who is excluded. We are all on a collision course that leads to hell. That verse says, just as sin came into the world through one man, namely Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. You've heard it many times before, but it bears repeating that Adam's sin alienated us from God. And we too are sinners by nature and by choice. And so as a result, our sin as well has alienated us from God. And so I could summarize this horrible problem by saying that apart from grace, 
Apart from God's sovereign grace, we remain unreconciled to God. Ephesians 2.12 says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I am convinced that as followers of Jesus, we need to return again and again and again so that we will remember our status apart from grace. There are some this morning who are still unreconciled to God. You are still unredeemed. You are under the wrath of Almighty God. But for those of us who are Christ followers, I believe it's important to remember our former condition apart from grace. For the Bible says that apart from grace, we are prisoners to sin. Apart from grace, we will stand forever under the Almighty wrath of a holy God. And while the first Adam failed... And was, as you know, booted out of the Garden of Eden. The last Adam obeyed God in another garden. The first Adam disobeyed God in a garden. The last Adam, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, obeyed God in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now what's fascinating to me, and I had not picked up on this. It was the first time I noticed this, that in John's gospel, he's the only gospel writer who does not identify these words as located in the Garden of Gethsemane. But you can see as you study the New Testament that this passage is in sync with the other gospel narratives. One writer says that in a garden... The first Adam brought sin and death to mankind, but Jesus, by his obedience, brought righteousness and life to all who trust in him. He was, as Warren Wiersbe says, obedient unto death. And he's citing the words from Philippians chapter 2, even the death on a cross. And so the title of the message this morning is, In the Shadow of the Cross. And we took eight weeks Eight weeks to walk through and study the gospel of John chapter 17, where we looked in great detail at the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we continue in our study, as we move forward in John chapter 18, we find the Lord Jesus Christ standing, as it were, in the shadow of the cross. The eternal destiny of his people is dependent upon his life, his death, and his subsequent resurrection. So would you stand with me as we read our passage in John chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with the disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and the disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? 
And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Will you pray with me? Fathers, we move closer to the cross upon which your son died on. We are filled with joy. We are filled with with humility to see all that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished for your glory and our, on our behalf. God, I pray as, that as we unveil this scene in Gethsemane, uh, that you would uh, once again do a mighty work, that we would see details that we have perhaps never seen before, and that you would prompt us in the right direction. That is a direction that, that honors you, that glorifies you. I pray that you would encourage the people of God as the word of God is open before us today. For it's in your son's worthy name we pray. Amen. In the passage before us this morning, I want to begin by drawing your attention to the sin of Judas. And Judas seeks, as you know, to to undermine the Lord Jesus Christ by betraying him. We first caught a glimpse of this several chapters ago in John chapter 13. But I want to draw your attention for a few moments to, to Judas and contrast the disobedience of Judas with the obedience of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There are three things I want you to see about Judas this morning. First, I want you to see that his heart now was hardened by sin. Proverbs 12.20 says, deceit. And when you think of Judas, you should think of that word, deceit. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil. But those who plan peace have joy. You see, in Judas, there was no planning of peace. There was no joy. He was one who was filled with deceit. And we see from this passage that his heart was also filled with evil. Indeed, it was hardened by sin. I find it interesting as we read this passage to note that John reports that Judas knew the place where Jesus would be with the twelve. Verse 2 says that Jesus often met with his disciples there. So there is little doubt in my mind that this was a, a special place, a place where much, uh, there was much learning. I remember in Lagrande, where Jereen and I and my family spent a little over 11 years, there was a special place I used to go to with the senior pastor and my good friend Wayne Pickens. Whenever something significant was going to happen in the life of the church, or whenever Pastor Wayne had a favor to ask of me, we would always go to the cemetery. And so I knew when we hopped in the truck and Wayne said, hey, let's go to the cemetery. I was like, oh boy, (laughs) either I'm in trouble, which never happened, I'm thankful for that, or there was some significant ministry that we were going to talk about. In like manner, 
the Lord Jesus Christ would spend time in the garden with his disciples. This is where ministry took place. This is where friendship was fostered. And so it's interesting to note that Judas also had likely spent time in the Garden of Gethsemane with the Lord Jesus Christ, where there was much learning, where there was much fellowship, where friendship was fostered. Now, in this place where there were so many good memories with Jesus and with his, his fellow disciples, now he takes advantage of this knowledge to formally betray Jesus. I hope this strikes you as it struck me. That he went to this special place where the friendship with Jesus was nurtured and cultivated along with the other disciples. And this is where he would take advantage of this knowledge to formally betray Jesus. Where the soldiers and the chief priests and the Pharisees would take over from there. Another interesting highlight in this passage is that John notes that Jesus betrayed him. Those are the words he uses, that he betrayed him, even though the, the actual act of betrayal had not formally taken place yet. You know, that took place as Jesus kissed the Lord Jesus Christ, helping the soldiers and the, the, the chief priests recognize that that indeed was Jesus. In other words, his action was not only premeditated, I want you to recognize that his act of betrayal was actually set in stone. That this is an act that was foreordained. This is an act that was decreed. And in some respects, you might say he didn't have a choice. But in other respects, you say he engaged his will and he did it freely. And that plan helped to, to further the redemptive timetable in the New Testament. It was on this day that Judas would betray the Lord Jesus Christ, a deed which he had already been cultivating in his heart. And so while Jesus, as you remember in John chapter 13, is instructing his disciples to love one another, Judas is behind the scenes plotting, scheming to betray the very one who loved him so very much. And so you see that Judah's heart was hardened by sin. Secondly, I want you to see that his tongue now was consumed with sin. Several verses uh, provide a, a bit of a profile to help us to see what's happening with Judas and how his tongue was consumed with sin. Psalm chapter 10, verse 7 says, His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit. And oppression under his tongue or mischief and iniquity. Psalm 36 3 says, The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and to do good. These verses accurately describe a person in the situation we have of Judas, of a man whose, whose tongue is literally consumed and poisoned with sin. In Romans 1 29, Paul says, Describing the sinfulness of sinners, that they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. And so these passages, combined with many others, describe the wicked intent of a person like Judas and demonstrate to us that 
his heart was hardened by sin and his tongue was consumed with sin. Finally, I want you to see that it was not only his heart that was hardened and his tongue that was consumed with sin, but also his hands and his feet were quick to engage in that sin. As I've already indicated, and you know from the context all the way back to John 13, that Judas was plotting. He was scheming. He was devising a plan where he would take over in this way, where he would betray the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Lord Jesus, who stood in the shadow of the cross, was undeterred. I want you to see some important facts that concern his identity, first of all, and some facts that concern his death. First of all, the facts concerning the identity of Jesus. Two things I want you to see this morning. First, I want you to see that Jesus acknowledged his identity. He acknowledged his identity. And look with me at verses 4 and 5 in John 18. Then Jesus, says the Apostle John, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. And they said to him, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. What struck me is that this must have come as a bit of a shock and surprise for the soldiers for the chief priests and the Pharisees. Why? Because for a period of time, Judas had promised to deliver the goods, if you will. He had told these religious officials, I know Jesus. I've spent time with him. In fact, I've been in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where he likes to hang out with his disciples. That's where some of his teaching has taken place. That's where some of this ministry with his disciples had taken place. I will lead him to you. And so this discussion happened for this period of time before the actual betrayal. He promised to deliver the king of the Jews to these so-called religious people. And now... The Lord Jesus Christ was finally in their grasp. And so this must have come as a shock, as a surprise to these religious leaders. And it's important to understand that now more than anything in our culture, the identity of Jesus Christ is under attack. Have you seen it? The identity of the Lord Jesus Christ is under attack. J.I. Packer says that Christology, the study of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the true hub round which the wheel of theology revolves, and to which its separate spokes must each be correctly anchored if the wheel is not to get bent. One writer in a book to be released in a few weeks said this, We should expect then that when theological formulation misunderstands or distorts the identity of Christ, the entire set of related theological convictions will eventually contort or collapse completely. That is to say, if we get Jesus wrong, we get everything wrong. If we get Jesus wrong as the hub of the wheel, as Packer stated, the spokes that emerge from that wheel will all be distorted. And so it's imperative that we get Jesus right, that we pay close attention here to his identity. That is to say, we must embrace the biblical portrait of Jesus. Now, case in point, I have the book in my study. It's actually in my 
I call it my man bag. I took it out of my man bag. I was going to put it in the pulpit. I was going to hold it up and show you. But I thought, no, I don't want to publicly advertise a book that is, in all reality, a very bad book. This book is written by a man by the name of Tom Crottenmaker, or Mocker, I don't know how to pronounce it. But the title of the book is Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower. And when I heard about this book that was just published a few weeks ago, I thought, well, I have to check it out. I have to see what, what a person who claims to be a secular Jesus follower is all about. This author refuses to acknowledge, first and foremost, that Jesus is God. This author refuses to acknowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. This author refuses to admit that Jesus Christ performed miracles. Now, I would submit to you that if you fail to believe that Jesus is God, that he rose from the dead, that he died on the cross for sinners and rose from the dead, and that he committed miracles, if you don't believe those things, you are not talking about the Jesus of the Bible. Here's what he says. He says it doesn't matter whether you think Jesus is the true son of God or whether you buy the Christian doctrine about his sacrificial death washing away your sins. The author continues. If you're like me, the notion of Jesus as your savior, as the formula to wipe out your sin and secure your ticket to heaven leaves you unmoved. I had to read that again. If you're like me, the notion of Jesus as your savior, as the formula to wipe out your sin and secure your ticket to heaven leaves you unmoved. Can I say this to you today? I hope, I pray, I trust that you are moved by the identity of Jesus Christ. As Jesus acknowledges in this passage and many others who he is, my prayer is that you are moved by him. Not moved by the notion of him. Not moved by some, some human uh, concocted idea of him. Not by some man-made production of him. But the biblical Jesus that emerges in the pages of the New Testament. The Jesus who is the hope of the nations. The Jesus who is the Savior that the world waited for. The Jesus who is the great deliverer. The Jesus who is the, the great I am, the first and the last, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The Jesus who is the Messiah. You see, if Jesus is not those things... If Jesus is not who he said he was, this is the reality. We are, as Paul said, still in our sins. Yet this writer remains unmoved as Jesus acknowledges very clearly his identity. There's a second thing I want you to see about his identity, and that is that Jesus acknowledged his deity. He acknowledged his deity. When he acknowledged his identity, he also acknowledged his deity. Now look at verse 5, and, and I, I hope you're, you're, you're blown away by this as we read it. They answered him. They're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, as Jesus has asked them. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Don't miss this. I am he. 
Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. So John, as he writes these words, says in verse 6, that when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, what's happening here? They drew back and they fell to the ground. In order to help us understand what's happening here, would you turn back to John chapter 8? John chapter 8. And look with me at verse 58. This wasn't the first time that Jesus had made this claim. And we see throughout the Gospel of John in particular that Jesus claims to be the God-man. In John 8, 58, Jesus says, To the onlookers, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Go back to John chapter 18. He says, I am he. This is the same Greek construction. This is ego eimi. I am. Written in the present tense, which means this, and we discussed this uh, several months ago. When Jesus says ego eimi, when he says I am, he means I have always existed I exist today, and I will exist unto all eternity. And so you see the religious leaders, the chief priests, and Judas, when they hear Jesus say, I am He, know this. It was more than just, you found Jesus, you got me. It was so much more than that. They recognize that He is making the claim to deity. I am. I am. And the implications of Jesus' deity are earth-shaking indeed. Imagine that you are with Judas, and that you go and you're about to arrest Jesus, and you ask the identity of this man, and he says, I am. They understood the implications were as follows, that he then is the creator. This means that he not only creates all things, but he sustains all things by the word of his power, as Hebrews 1.3 says. This means that he is sovereign over everything in the universe. Notice their response. It's easy to miss. The Bible says they fell to the ground. I really want to do a demo this morning, but I'll spare you the demo. Can you just imagine? They fell to the ground. Most commentators I read include Judas among those who fell to the ground. Right? They're blown away. He's claiming to be God. And so as the enemies fell to the ground, so too will every person who fails to heed the word of God. So as Jesus is surrounded by Judas and those who would seek him harm, I want to take a minute and think now with you in our remaining moments about the big picture to move past the actual betrayal and note with you several facts concerning the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first fact I want you to see is that the death of Jesus is ordained by God. You see, it's very easy to to get into this mindset where in the scope of redemptive history, Jesus gets to this place in John chapter 18. Judas sells him out. Judas betrays him. He's arrested. And now we all know what happens. He makes his way to the cross. It's easy to think that God is, or it, it shouldn't be easy, but it is, that God is piecing things together as we go along in redemptive history. But the Bible never talks with those terms. Hold your finger in John chapter 18 and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 20. 
In 1 Peter 1.20, we see, we get an inside glimpse at the eternal purposes of God. Peter the Apostle says that he, that is Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your your faith and your hope are in God. Almost 800 years before Jesus appeared on the scene as the God-man, the incarnation of Jesus, we read these words in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He had put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And so as we look at the framework of this story, I want you to remember that the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is ordained. It is foreordained. It is planned by God the Father. Second, I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2, and we'll look at two very, very important passages, both in Acts 2 and Acts 4. Acts 2 and Acts 4. And I want you to see that all the details, every single detail of Jesus' death now, were ordained by God. Every little decision along the way, every, every turn in the road, every man-made decision along the way was ordained by God. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, the Bible says, This Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Turn over to Acts chapter 4 and look with me at verse 27, 8, 27 and 28. And we see a similar flavor of this foreordained death and that the details of Jesus' death were ordained by God. Verse 27, For truly in the city there were gathered together against you, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And this morning, the purpose is not to teach this particular doctrine, but some of you know exactly what's happening here, is on the one hand, you have God foreordaining the death of Jesus. Then you ask, who is it that actually nailed him to the cross? It was those religious leaders. And so it is the inner workings of God and the will of man that comes together to fulfill the plan of God. That is to say, the details of Jesus' death, all of the details of death, were sovereignly arranged, including the Lord Jesus Christ's arrival at Gethsemane and the exact location where he spent such quality time with his disciples, including Judas, where he would ultimately be betrayed and arrested, as we will see next week. Number three, and I hope this encourages you, is because this is a sobering story to study and to read. But I want you to see that Jesus now was in sovereign control of the events leading up to his death. In verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, don't lose sight of that, Jesus Christ... The God-man, the one who is omniscient, he knows all things. 
He is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He knows all that would happen to him. Came forward and asked them, who do you seek? And of course, they seek none other than Jesus of Nazareth. I want you to see that his absolute sovereignty explains his demeanor in the story. Imagine if you were standing in Jesus' sandals. I don't know about you, but if it's me and I see my friend Judas, who I already knew was going to betray me, and as I'm standing there with my disciples and I see off in the distance the lanterns swinging, and then I see the face of Judas, and then I see a band of soldiers, I don't know about you, but I, 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 am, I am nervous, to put it mildly. Imagine now, Jesus Christ knows exactly what's coming, but his absolute sovereignty explains his demeanor in the story. He is sovereign over the will of Judas. He is sovereign over the will of the soldiers. He is sovereign over every circumstance. And I love this, including Peter chopping off the ear of the soldier. Now, commentators say this, the Greek word for sword we as Americans, we as Westerners, and we see sword, we think Braveheart, right? Right? It wasn't a big sword. It was a little sword. And it was a sword he tried to chop the head off of Peter, according to most commentators I read. And what most gather is that he missed. And so impetuous Peter can't even get the guy's head. He ends up getting his ear, and Jesus rebukes him. Yet Jesus is sovereignly in control over even that event. And what does Jesus do? He heals the ear of the soldier. Jesus was not only in sovereign control of this story. As you know, Jesus Christ is sovereignly in control of everything, including the events on Tuesday. And I don't know about you, but that's something I have to keep reminding myself. Because this is a scary, scary time in American history. Shall we all remember together as members of Christ Fellowship that Jesus is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God? That Jesus is sovereignly in control of everything and it doesn't matter who gets elected. And maybe I'm saying this to bring comfort to myself <laughs> because I'm worried. Jesus is sovereignly in control of our lives. He's in sovereign control of our country. He's in sovereign control of our government. I also want you to see that Jesus willingly laid down his life. You see, Jesus was not a mere passive bystander. He was not a, a passive participant in this drama. Back in John 10, Jesus said this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And may I remind you, much to the chagrin of some theologians in our culture, that the Lord Jesus Christ has from all eternity, as the one who is equal to God the Father in every respect, submitted to God the Father, and will submit to God the Father to all eternity. John MacArthur says that Jesus went with them willingly to carry out 
the divine plan of redemption that called for his sacrificial death. Next, I want you to see that Jesus not only willingly laid down his life, he obediently laid down his life. So in verse 11 of John 18, Jesus says to Peter, he says, put your sword in its sheath. Put your little sword back in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You see, we all know because Jesus is sovereignly in control of this narrative, Jesus could have easily wiped out every soldier. He could have outsmarted Judas. He could have called forth the holy angels to do his bidding. But from all eternity, as I've already indicated, Jesus Christ has submitted to the plans and the purposes of his Father. Might I say this morning that it's a good thing to be under authority? You know, many people in our culture, they don't like to have a boss. They don't like to have someone overseeing them. They don't like to have people tell them what to do. Maybe I'm weird, but I like to be under authority. I like it. Why? Because there's safety in that context. And there are some... There are some churches where a senior pastor controls everything that happens, and that's not the case. You need to understand at Christ Fellowship because we work together in the Council of Elders, and we are equal participants as we shepherd this church for the glory of God. Ultimately, in this story, we see that Jesus will drink the cup of divine judgment. He will drink the cup of that is filled with the almighty wrath of God. And he says very clearly in this passage that Peter does not have in mind the things of God, but the Lord Jesus Christ will obey. The Lord Jesus Christ does obey. And it's interesting to me, as we close this morning, that impetuous Peter, the one who pulled his little sword out, the one who as he was walking on the water, took his eyes off the Lord Jesus Christ and sank. The one who we will see next week denied the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but for me, I can relate to Peter. He's a guy who struggled with sin, but he's a guy that Jesus used. He's a guy who wrote the book of First Peter and Second Peter and served Jesus in the coming days after the crucifixion, with great humility and great distinction, all to the glory of God. And he gives us these words in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He provides this portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he saw it firsthand. He said that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That is God the Father. He goes on to say that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And as I studied this passage, the thought occurred to me that there was nothing left to chance. There is nothing left to chance throughout redemptive history. 
Back in Genesis 3, verse 15, when Adam and Eve learned that there would be one who would come, that his heel would be bruised, or rather, his heel would be bruised and the head of the devil would be crushed. Nothing was left to chance as we walk through and read from the Old Testament prophets. Nothing will be left to chance when Jesus comes and is born of the Virgin Mary. And Herod calls for the death of all those young boys trying to eradicate, most notably, the person of Jesus Christ. There was nothing left to chance as Jesus made his way to Calvary's cross as he was betrayed by his friend Judas, there is nothing left to chance as Jesus stood in the shadow of the cross. Everything, including the betrayal, including the arrest, as we will see next week, was according to the sovereign timetable of God. This morning, as Jason and the worship team come to lead us in an extended time of worship, where we will partake of the elements out of obedience to Jesus, I want to ask, what is your response to this sovereign Savior? Do you stand in awe this morning of his majesty? Do you stand in awe of his sovereign control over all all things? Do you stand in awe of the great love he has for his people? Or, like Judas, do you continue to stubbornly deny his authority? You see, in my mind, there is no middle ground. We either stand in awe and worship and surrender and submit and find our satisfaction in Jesus, or we continue to stubbornly rebel against the person and the work of Jesus, the one who who came to die on a wooden cross for the sins of every person who would ever believe, the one who came to, to bridge the gap between sinful people and a holy God. Will you rejoice In him, will you find your satisfaction in him on this day and as we move into this week? Or will you continue to stubbornly deny and stand in defiance of the Lord Jesus Christ as he stands in the shadow of the cross? Let's pray together. Father, thank you uh, for the plan in eternity past to send Jesus to be our substitute to live a life that we could never live and die a death that each of us deserve to die. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for obeying the Father, not only during your earthly ministry, but also in eternity past as well as into eternity future. Thank you for modeling that submission to a holy Father. We thank you that you were obedient all the way to the cross. We thank you for purchasing our salvation, for reconciling your people to a holy God for redeeming us out of the slave market of sin. We thank you for the free gift of salvation and the amazing results that it it produces in our lives, as we learned about in Veritas this morning. So, Lord Jesus, may, may you continue to renovate and reform your people here in this place. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill your people with your presence that you would enable them to to stand with you, to, to be filled by you, to obey the living God. And now as we come to the table, we remember these elements, the, the bread representing the body of Jesus and the cup representing his blood. 
And as we partake of these elements, we remember that we will only be satisfied by walking with Jesus in fellowship with him. Thank you, Jesus, once again for your cross work on our behalf and most of all on behalf of the Father. In your name we pray. Amen.